Let us pray. So, Father, how grateful we are that you have sent Jesus, your Son, as our Redeemer. And that with his ascension, you poured out your Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. You have not left us comfortless. So today, as we look to the baptism of our Lord in this season of Epiphany, that reveals the glory of your Son and your love for us, I pray that you would draw us close to you. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. So good to see all of you here. We had a wonderful Epiphany service Friday night, and thanks to all of you who who came out and participated in that service, which we do annually. And um, it was a wonderful, wonderful time. And continuing on this first Sunday in Epiphany, which is always the baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ on the church calendar, I want to invite you to turn to the third chapter of Matthew's gospel, verses 13 through 17, to our gospel reading today. When we talk about Epiphany, as Father Jed defines so well in his sermon on Friday night, Epiphany is really about the manifestation of Jesus Christ for who he really is, especially to the Gentiles. In the account of the visit of the Magi read from Matthew on Friday night, Scripture reveals to us who Jesus is. Um, And Epiphany, as Father Jed also talked about on Friday night, really folds three events into one on the church calendar. Um, The visit of the Magi, and then today, um, the baptism of Jesus and the revelation of what occurs there. And then also the wedding in Cana of Galilee where Jesus performed his first miracle, turning the water into wine. But there's also, prior to Epiphany, further revelation earlier with Jesus in this regard. When we look at chapter 2 of St. Luke's Gospel, where Simeon and Anna both spoke prophetically regarding Christ when he was presented at the temple. One January 1st doesn't fall on a Sunday as it did last week. We observe the circumcision and holy name of our Lord Jesus Christ on the church calendar on January 1st. So as I've said, this unfolding revelation of who Jesus really and truly is as both the eternal Son of God and the Messiah continues in our gospel reading today. As we look in some detail at St. Matthew's account of Jesus' baptism, kind of um, in a preliminary where there are three things which I I think it is helpful for us to keep in mind. First, we need to remember that this event marks the inauguration, if you will, of Jesus' ministry as Messiah. To be clear, hear me, to be clear, it is wholly incorrect to say that he became the Messiah at this moment. He had always been this anointed one, the promised deliverer for all time and eternity. Second, under this first point, Jesus did not somehow become the Son of God at this time. He was not somehow adopted by the God the Father. To assert this denies his eternal existence as God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. And John chapter 1 in the prologue to John's gospel that we read on Christmas morning affirms this reality that Jesus is the anointed one and he is the eternal Son of God from all time and eternity past. Jesus did not need to be baptized for the cleansing of his sins because he is the sinless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So to assert that Jesus became Messiah 
or that he somehow became the son of God or that he needed to be baptized for the remission of sins are all heretical teachings that were addressed and refuted by the early church. And it's important to note that from time to time, including in our day, these heresies continue to rear their head. One of the things we need to remember about heresies is that there is nothing new under the sun. Heresies that we hear today are not new or novel in our day. I can guarantee you they were addressed in the first three to four centuries of the church, and they just continue to rear their head. So again, this event, Jesus' baptism, marks the inauguration of his active messianic ministry. Two, by way of background, what we read beginning in Matthew 3.13 through Matthew 4.12, where we read in 4.12 of Jesus leaving the wilderness after triumphing over Satan's temptations, that period marks a period of empowerment and preparation in launching this earthly messianic ministry. These verses are bracketed in 3.13, with Matthew 3.13, with Jesus arriving at the Jordan River from Galilee, which was his boyhood home and young adult home, to be baptized by John. And then that bracket closes in Matthew 4.12, with Jesus returning to Galilee. In Matthew 4.12 through 13, we read, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Most of Jesus' earthly ministry took place in this northern part of Palestine. And then third and finally, by way of background, the importance of Jesus' baptism is highlighted by the fact that in St. Matthew's Gospel, this is the first time that Jesus himself is recorded as speaking. And we see that in verse 15 of Matthew chapter 3. So now, keeping all of this in mind, let's look briefly at two key points from this text. First, let's look at the significance of Jesus' baptism. <clears throat> the account of Jesus' baptism in Matthew's gospel immediately follows upon John the Baptist's prophetic words a little bit earlier in chapter 3, verses 11 through 12, where we read, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John gets it. John the Baptist understands who Jesus is. But here now, the one who's on sandals, he says he is not worthy to carry, is coming to him. He's coming to John to be baptized. As Craig Keener says, we have the eternal one coming to be baptized like an ordinary mortal. And Jesus' answer of why this needed to be, why it is fitting, he said, was to fulfill all righteousness. To fulfill all righteousness. Clearly, Jesus' baptism was not a baptism for repentance as it was for everyone else who was coming to John to be baptized. Because unlike every other person who has or will ever live, Jesus alone, as the perfect eternal Son of God, has nothing to repent of because he is the sinless Son of God. 
So what does Jesus' statement about, about fulfilling all righteousness here mean? And what does this teach us? Three things. First, in his baptism, Jesus identifies with God's people. <clears throat> Jesus identifies with Old Testament Israel at a critical and climactic stage in her history, further calling them to repentance and fidelity to God, the God of the covenants. Jesus is demonstrating through himself and his actions what he, as God the Son, is calling others to be. And what is that that he's calling others to be? Obedient children of God. Obedient children of God the Father. And this too was John the Baptist's call to them as the forerunner of the Christ. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 3, 2. Second and very closely related to this first point, in his baptism, Jesus demonstrated the heart of the Father and what a right heart toward the Father looks like. What it looks like when it's lived out. <clears throat> God's Old Testament people, for the most part, had lost their way. There were exceptions. But they, in most instances, had allowed the law to de de degenerate into a list of do's and don'ts, absent of any genuine faith or heart fidelity to God. The righteousness that Jesus fulfills and the righteousness to which he and John called people was real, actual, and lived out in God's power. It began with and grew through a living relationship. And that is not just true under the new covenant. That is true under the old covenant as well. A righteousness that only comes to repentance and a living relationship with God, which leads to a life aligned with the heart of God and the priorities of his kingdom. And part of Jesus' emphasis in verse 15 is that now, Hear that, that word now, this moment has come. Now is the time for this. And that this is what true fidelity to, true fidelity, God's righteousness lived out in his people's lives begin with, and this is what it looks like. Conversely, Jesus also shows us the heart of the Father. That repentance that leads to transformation is possible because of the grace of God toward us. Broken or non-existent relationship with God can indeed be restored by God's gracious action and God's gracious offer. But it requires embracing Jesus. Both what he has shown us and embracing what he has done for us. A long name here, Erasmo Leva Miracakis, who is a Catholic theologian who's now a Trappist monk, writes this about repentance and sin. Sin is grounded in an illusion concerning my own alleged greatness and my worth in my own eyes. Repentance is grounded not merely in a desire to abase myself, but in a clear understanding, and a profound conviction of my great worth in the eyes of God. In other words, that's how much God loves us. 
He loves us so much that he calls us to himself and he makes it possible for us to enter into relationship with him. And through Christ, repentance and change and transformation is indeed possible. And the emphasis here with the baptism of Jesus is that now is the time. Now is the time by God's grace and power made available to us, to all who would trust in Christ. And through that, through this moment and what Christ is doing, we can indeed live lives of godliness and holiness and righteousness. Now is the time. In our Anglican Catechism that's so wonderfully done that has, was released a few years ago, under... <clears throat> the section called Concerning the Past Sacraments and Baptism, question number 128 asks this. What is required of you when you come to be baptized? The answer, two things are required. Repentance, in which I turn away from my sin, and faith, in which I turn to Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord and trust the promises, promises of God that God makes to me in this sacrament. So if you have come to a place of faith, you have come to a place of repentance, you need to be baptized. Come to Christ. Confess your sins. Avail yourself of the grace that God offers to you. God's grace is poured out in so many ways in his transforming power, but avail yourself. God calls us to avail ourselves of the grace of the sacraments, the sacrament of baptism, then following baptism, the Holy Eucharist, where we partake of the body and blood of Christ, and God's power and strength come into us through that. Yes, God's grace comes to us in so many ways as his people, but he gives us his grace in the sacraments as well. Don't miss that reality. And as we come to him and we experience his grace and his transformation, he will transform your heart and your life. Now is the time. It's not to be put off. It's not to be delayed. And whether it's coming to Christ in faith and repentance for the first time, or whether we come time and time again daily as believers, God every time pours his grace to sustain us and strengthen us and make us new creations into our lives. And then third, in his baptism, Jesus demonstrates humble submission to the will of the Father. It is at and through his baptism that Jesus' heavenly identity as the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit is affirmed from heaven. In his baptism, Jesus continues to live out in perfection what humble submission to the will of the Father looks like. He embraces his baptism, and in it he identifies with fallen humanity. He identifies with you and me. But this is just the start. Because this sequence of humble obedience will continue, finding its ultimate expression in his humiliating death on the cross of Calvary quote Merikakis again, he who is the living kingdom of God in his own person puts on the penitential garb and recites prayers of contrition for our own sinful flesh, which is now his own. So we've discussed the significance of Jesus' baptism. Finally, let us look at the result of Jesus' baptism. 
Look at verses 15 through 17 of Matthew 3 with me. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. It's no coincidence that the um, adult education class who meets here in the main church on Sunday mornings has begun the Behold series, because the two key points in these verses are identified by the word behold. Behold, the heavens were open. God, the Holy Spirit, visibly manifests himself in what appears like a dove. And the, and the Spirit's descent clearly marks again that now is the time. This is the moment for Jesus to inaugurate the ministry for which he has come to the world in all of its fallenness and brokenness. The appearance of the spirit like a dove also speaks something to God's people both then and now. And it says this, through God's divine action, it is a new day. It can be a new day. When we think back to the Old Testament, where else does a dove or dove imagery play a key symbolic role? And Noah, yes, in Genesis chapter 8 at the cessation of the flood. And God sent a dove as a sign, a physical dove in that instance. But just as a dove, a physical dove sent by God appeared as the herald of a new era following the flood. So God declares, even with the descent of the spirit like a dove, that he is making all things new through his beloved son. God figuratively sends his dove of peace. Remember the words to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. It's a new day. And here we have a profound revelation of the Holy Trinity Again, to quote Mary Kakis, I know I'm quoting him a lot today, but he had so many good things to say. The Father is in heaven. The Spirit is fluttering in midair. The Son stands by the Jordan wearing his penitent's garb. We may say that the Trinity, Trinity itself has opened even wider than the heavens so as to encompass fallen mankind in the whirlpool of the, the divine life of the three persons. I love that imagery to encompass us in the whirlpool of the divine life of the three persons, the divine life of God, the Trinity. The second behold here marks the voice of the Father from heaven, verse 17. And behold, a voice from heaven said, Jesus Christ is the unique, only, eternal Son of the Father. This is affirmed by the visible descent of the third person of the Holy Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, in this moment. And this revelation that we see here points to Jesus' unique status and relationship in the Godhead. Through Christ and what he has accomplished 
and through his faithful obedience to the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit, even to the point of death on the cross. Through him, you and I, through the Son, the eternal Son, are now offered the experience of sonship in God. And I say that very gender-specific sonship because it was sonship in the biblical world and the biblical culture that meant one was the heir to all things. So whether you are a man or a woman, as God's child, you have the inheritance of a son, as it was understood in that world. And this comes through the beloved son, the eternal son. In Romans chapter 8, St. Paul writes these words. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Did you hear that? Adoption as sons. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. <clears throat> Clifford Stewart is a pastor in Louisville, Kentucky, and in Leadership Magazine, he wrote a number of years ago about an experience that goes way back, for those of you that are a little bit younger, when he gifted his parents with their first microwave oven at Christmas. How many of you can remember when microwave ovens came out? <laughs> but he writes this. They were excited that they, now they too could be a part of the instant generation. When dad unpacked the microwave and plugged it in, literally within seconds, the microwave transformed two smiles into frowns. Because even after reading the directions, they couldn't make it work. Two days later, my mother was playing bridge with a friend and confessed her inability to get that microwave oven even to boil water, saying, to get this darn thing to work, I really need better direction. I, I really don't need better directions. I just needed my son to come along with the gift. And then Stuart makes the observation. When God gave the gift of salvation, he didn't send a booklet of complicated instructions for us to figure out. He sent his son. To quote Mary Cacus one final time, this is the whole point of a fifth epiphany. What the son has always been is now manifested before all men, before all people, under the radiance of the spirit who shows us Jesus' true face. In epiphany, at his baptism, God shows us Jesus true faced his whole identity uniquely revealed and revealing the heart of the father because when we see truly the radiance and the true face of Jesus he reveals to us the heart of the father the father who loves you and me and the world so much that he sent his only son for us that's the essence of epiphany. That God, the eternal son, left all the glories of heaven and came as the Messiah, the savior of the world, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
to show us the heart of the Father, the heart of the Father that calls us into ever-deepening relationship and intimacy with Him, the heart of the Father who calls us to and makes it possible for us to repent and live godly, righteous, holy lives, the heart of the Father that transforms and sets free and makes all things new. The heart of the Father says, now is the time. Today is the day. Come, come to me. Come to me through my son and experience my life and my transformation and my grace poured out in abundant measure in your life and in all who will trust me. Let us pray. Father, we stand in awe, in loving awe, I pray of your grace and goodness toward us and that you didn't send us a checklist or a book of instructions that we could never work through and accomplish, but you sent your son to show us your heart because to have seen him, to have encountered him is to encounter and to know and walk in intimate fellowship with you. So thank you, Father, for what you have done for us through Jesus. And Lord, may today be a day of new beginnings. May each of us remember that now is the time. Behold, you make all things new. So Lord, whether that be coming to you in faith and trust for the first time, or yet again, as we walk with you daily, pour your grace into our lives. As we come to the Eucharist in just a little while, Lord, um, nourish us and strengthen us and renew us with the body and blood of your Son. And may you continue to transform us into his image for your praise and glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.